Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. You may have already guessed, but you're here today with Kara Williard, and you can check out all the very many things we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. For today's edition of Gear 30, I got to talk with Oliver Steffen, founder and president of G3, or Genuine Guide Gear. For over 20 years, G3 has been known for its backcountry gear, skis, and snowboards. Oliver has always had a passion for innovation and problem solving, which is what originally inspired him to start the company. Well, today we get to hear about how all of this has evolved into the newest project that G3 has been focusing on, which is the development of their R3 ski and snowboard recycling program. This program completely flips the idea of a product's life cycle on its head, and as you will hear, Oliver has become very passionate about taking ownership of what happens to a product as it reaches its, quote, end of life. R3 stands for Ride, Reuse, and Recycle, and G3 has developed their own proprietary technology to ensure that every ski and snowboard that they manufacture from the 23-24 season and on is 100% recyclable. But they also haven't stopped there. Oliver and I talk about the issue of the right to repair and what other G3 products are receiving a R3 stamp now that they have invested in repairing, reusing, or recycling gear. We also discuss what this means for consumers, retailers, and the entire outdoor industry at large. We also dive into some of the details for the 23-24 ski and snowboard lineup, where G3 is headed in the future, and more. Before we get going, this episode of Gear 30 is brought to you by Open Snow. Open Snow is your one-stop shop for all the essential weather tools. You can view 10-day weather forecasts for any location on Earth, read expert local analysis from their team of local forecasters, track active fires with perimeter, hotspot, and smoke forecast maps, avoid lightning with live and forecast radar, compare recent conditions and forecasts at your favorite locations or maybe as you decide where you're headed for the weekend, and plenty more. Open snow has always been one of my daily obsessions in the winter as I check the snow forecasts multiple times a day, but this summer I have also been finding it a very useful tool, especially now that there is a fire burning a little too close for comfort here in the Gunnison Valley. I've really appreciated the smoke forecast maps and getting a better understanding of what the fire is up to just a few miles from the house. So that's been awesome. I also have been checking it quite a bit to hopefully see a better pattern of monsoons moving in, but so far, no luck. We'll keep hoping for the rain though. So visit opensnow.com and upgrade to all access using the discount code BLISTER23 at checkout, and this will save you 50% off your first year. Again, that's BLISTER23 at opensnow.com. So head over there today and redeem that coupon. And with that, let's get right into my conversation with Oliver Steffen, the founder and president of Genuine Guide Gear. Oliver. 
All right. Well, I am here today with Oliver Stephan, the president and founder of G3. And before we get going on some really exciting new initiatives in the works that G3 has going on, I just really want to hear sort of the background of the company. So thanks for joining us today, Oliver. And I'll just kind of let you dive into how it all began and how you came about founding G3 a couple of decades ago. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for finding some time to talk. Um, yeah, well, it's been a long journey, right? I mean, we G three started twenty, I guess, twenty seven, twenty eight years ago, um, making some uh, avalanche safety equipment, some basic stuff, and uh, we just found that there was a need. That was sort of the beginning of a lot of ski touring. It was really ramping up, uh, actually, yeah, a little bit early, but um, it became a solid thing, and we we just we kept adding product categories got into telemark uh and then it expanded in ski touring where at alpine touring really became popular especially the tech binding system um and we've been part of that that wave um for years now and uh, we continue to focus on the ski touring categories and continue to innovate we're we're highly focused you know five out of five out of 18 people are sort of engineering focused and um spent a lot of time and energy on IP, intellectual property, patents and things. And we love innovations. We love just really challenging how to do something differently, how to do something better, how to make it lighter, how to make it stronger, and just new ways of, uh, of uh, traveling in the backcountry. So that's, that's kind of what, that's our energy, right? That's what we do. Yeah, that's excellent. And I guess from a sort of personal pursuit, what sort of drove you individually to kind of jump off into this uh, whole, whole career? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I skied, you know, I grew up skiing in the East and uh, skied at university and started to get involved, um, do a lot of activities, uh, kiteboarding, wingboarding, things like that, and uh, and skiing, obviously. And um, uh, really, I guess the, the start of it was finding, going to buy products and then finding that they were, you know, they, they kind of did the job, but boy, it was early days and there were lots of room for improvement and it, some, sometimes it was pretty obvious. Um, but you know, we we're fortunate to have anything on the market at that time. And so there weren't a lot of choices. And so there are lots of opportunities. If, if, if you look at a product critically, um, either from a materials or engineering or design, design is a, it's a bigger umbrella of how something works. It's not just, you know, whether it looks good or not, it, although that's an important aspect, but it's also, uh, it can be, a, it can be what it sounds like, you know, that, that can affect design or be part of good design. And um, yeah, we tend to have an appreciation for that, the whole holistic package of a product's design, uh, including things like durability, the materials, the aesthetics, um, how it works, uh, the weight of it, all those aspects of it. And so that, that's what drives us. We, we like to make really good stuff. That's kind of what we do. It's not perfect. I mean, products are always challenged. Um, but if you're pushing the envelope and you're trying new things, you're invariably will end up learning and then and improving on it, right? That's the whole idea is constantly chipping away, just making stuff better and better. Yeah, absolutely. And before we kind of shift this towards some of what's really exciting and in the works for you guys currently, I guess um, I just am curious to hear more like you, you're kind of talking about this product design and everything that goes into it and all the elements that you have to consider as you're developing a product that is intended to do what you've designed it to do. 
But where did this sort of idea of like, how can we implement sustainability into the process come about? And when did you really start thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a topic um, in the world and has been for years now. Um, certain brands have really, um, you know, um, led that charge. Um, for us, it, it hasn't been our sort of MO, like it hasn't been our main focus. We don't wave a banner and, and say, this is what we're doing. And we're not all, you know, just green focus, let's say. Um, but I'll tell you during our production and we have 20,000 square feet here. Um, it's constantly in your face. Like you see it, you see waste, you see materials, you see offcuts, you see, uh, bins of aluminum stuff. You know, you see parts that might, uh, have a defect in them and, 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 and so you're constantly looking at things from, oh, boy, where is that going now? And and usually it starts with, oh, well, what did that cost, right? That's kind of the, the – and then you're like, oh, but wait, where is that going? Oh, it's going to recycler or it's not because it's not a combination of stainless and aluminum that, you know, you can't extract the two without, you know, putting a lot of time and energy into it. Um, and even then it's like, well, what would it cost to recycle that stainless and aluminum gadget that's been built, right? How do you take them apart? You know, and there's different ways to do that, but usually involves in investing time and money uh, to do it. But then, you know, over the years, you start saying, but we should be doing that. You know, how do we minute? And then it's you get into uh, manufacturing practices. How do you minimize wastage, right? There's, there's good things you can design into a product so that you don't have wastage during production. That's first one of the first ones, but also design it for what they call design for manufacturing. You design it so it can be manufactured well with high quality efficiently without a lot of waste and and so um i find a lot of people don't know how things are made or where things come from you know like you know some people you know where does your phone come from like the actual all the components like you know a lot of people don't know that and then we're usually familiar with the factory that might be assembling the phone or the binding the ski binding or, or anything else but you know, what were all the inputs, the whole supply chain that led to that and the design and the thinking and the changing. And it's, uh, there's a pretty big, long effort to get a product to market. And uh, for instance, like a binding, a ski binding might take, you know, it's in design for a couple of years at least. And that's, that's not, not just, um, you know, field testing, that's, you know, just conceptualizing and then sourcing and then building prototypes and then, you know, breaking them and then you, you build another one and you keep improving and cycle testing and fatigue testing and all the, all the work that goes into making a ski binding, uh, never mind an airplane, you know, that has a whole uh, much bigger um, scope. And so, uh, yeah, we, we like to make, we like to make really interesting stuff, challenging stuff, right. And try to make it well. And, and so does everybody else. There are lots of good brands out there. So it's a constant challenge. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, right now we're at a very pivotal moment and it's going to be really exciting to talk a bunch more about that. Um, but before we do, I mean, kind of looking back at the history of the company, do you feel like there has been other sort of pivotal moments or sort of developments with gear or some product that you brought to market that you were like, wow, this is, you know, helping sort of change the trajectory of the industry or something like that, that you're kind of proud of and maybe um, helps you to continue to innovate to where you are now? Right. Uh, yeah, some, you know, avalanche probes come to mind. We used to be able to rebuild them quite easily, take them apart and rebuild them. And then, you know, over the years that became more of a made in a factory somewhere else type product. And then now it's shifting back to, we're actually making them and you can refurbish them here. So you can 
take them apart and rebuild them. And, and if a tube section is scratched, that's okay. Like that doesn't, you know, and I think people can accept that uh, more nowadays, they, especially if it's their probe and they scratched it and you've actually fixed it for them, you give it back to them. And the, it's a win-win for everybody. Um, nor, nor should it just go into the landfill, right? Uh, and then that applies to other things like climbing skins, which, which are, is a challenging project or product. And then you get skis and snowboards and, and ski bindings. Why is a ski binding largely um, consumable? You use a ski binding, whether it's an alpine binding or a tech binding, um, you just use it until mostly until you're tired of your skis. And then your skis get put in a closet or a basement or worse, go in the landfill. Um, you know, why? So much energy and the materials and the aluminum and the stainless and the, all that, all those resources have gone into that product. And then it goes into a landfill, which is a tragedy. And I think we've all become brutally aware of what's been going on and, and how it's changing the planet and all the, the damage that's been done already. And so what can we do now to reverse that and, or to, and at a, to minimize it first, but then potentially how do you reverse that? And, and make a change for the better and leave the world a better place than we found it than when, than when not. So, you know, we're actively going towards a, a, a B Corp status. Uh, it is a big undertaking if, if people aren't familiar with it. Really fascinating reading, really interesting stuff to read about that whole process. And it changes your way of thinking. And in during that, during that process or during the, the evolution that we're going through, we've become much more aware of all the um, the inputs and outputs that we have and the role we play and, the, and the, ultimately the decisions we make in everything, whether it's the shipping company or the sourcing uh, geopolitical considerations, like <clears throat> are we sourcing something from somewhere that may or may not be a great choice? Uh, and you have to balance all of that with the costs. You still have to run a business. People still expect their paycheck. The landlord still expects the rent, right? Um, so you have to make it all work. And that makes it, uh, again, challenging again, right? Uh, it up running any business. Um, and so the, the B Corp sort of journey that we've started and, and seen our own production for years, we're like, wow, we can do this better. And there are things we can do. And, and if you get the right minded people on board, which we have more so than we've had, say, you know, 20 years ago, um, people are much more aware. People come out of school, sometimes with some training, definitely with some awareness. Sometimes they've worked at other businesses um, especially in the outdoor industry. And so they're much more aware of, Hey, we, we can do better. And so once you get everybody pulling in the right direction, it's amazing what you can pull off, right. What you can get done. And then that's, we're at the beginning of that. And so it's, um, and it, it's not something that has a, an, an end date or goal. You don't, you don't just deliver it and you're finished. It, it, it becomes a way of doing business and, and you can always improve. You can always find other ways to improve, um, you know, what we're leaving behind or what we're trying not to leave behind. And so your, your question was about the products. I mean, the avalanche probes that were one of our first products that was definitely, Oh, wow. We can rebuild these. We can reuse them. Um, uh, telemark bindings, definitely, you know, back in that days, a lot of things broke and so, you, you know, how do you repair something? Repairability, right to repair has become a bigger topic nowadays. Back then it was sort of an obvious thing of, Hey, can I buy those parts or I'm going to carry spare parts with me? Um, and then uh, climbing skins, you get, you know, the adhesive, which is largely a consumable. So how do you repair, you know, this whole repairability is a really important topic and plays into um, a lot of our product development now. So our new products all sort of have a mandate to 
you need to be able to repair them or at least refurbish them. You know, people can do it themselves for simple things. Um, uh, and other times it's a, well, it has to get done at the factory, but let's get it back. You know, let's ship it back. Um, and, and let's refurbish it. Let's rebuild it. Like you do a car transmission. I use that example a lot. No, you don't just buy a new transmission. Usually you rebuild it. Usually you, you sometimes can rebuild your car brakes. They're, 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 they're designed to be refurbishable um, with components and you can remove things that break down or wear out and you, you plug in a new one. And so not all components wear at the same rate. And so that's part of their design. You don't throw out the whole car when your brakes stop working, right? You, you fix them. And so can you apply that thinking to say a ski binding? Can a ski binding be refurbishable? Can you can you take it apart and rebuild it with the parts that need to be replaced? And that's the direction we're going. And we have some really cool designs on that. And then we got into skis and snowboards. And you think about these these items. A, a designer from years ago, um, uh, I said, I said, hey, can we make a ski that we can somehow take apart? Like we were thinking, you know, mechanically or, or you know freeze it so cold that it shatters or all kinds of different ways to do it. Right. If you really think outside the box. Um, and he, he laughed at me and he said, well, wow, like for 50 or a hundred years, however long people have been making skis, their whole focus has been to make them more durable, to make it so it doesn't come up. So it doesn't shatter. So it doesn't break. So it doesn't, you know, chip. And, and we laughed at the time. This was, you know, 10, 15 years ago because, it was just an odd idea that we didn't think really made any sense. Um, but we've rechallenged, we challenged ourselves again recently and there is a way. And so we have figured out a way to make skis and snowboards that we make split boards um, where we can recycle our skis like 100%. So all the components and it, we're not, uh, we're not just grinding them up and using them in uh, you know, road bed or, as landfill you know that kind of thing um we're actually uh taking all the components and actually being able to separate them and finding a home for them and so our focus isn't hey let's build uh, uh chairs or coffee tables out of our our skis that that that's better than putting them in the landfill but definitely it's, yeah it's kind of a well it's creative for sure but there's <laughs> way too many skis in the world yep you know and so how do you really solve the problem and can you potentially reuse those materials potentially in skis, but they can be, the materials can be used in anything, right. As a, as a new purpose. And so we figured out how to do that. So all our skis are being made. Uh, they're called R3. It's our R3 line of skis. All our skis have been um, um, switched over and uh, we're now making skis and snowboards that are hundred percent recyclable. So our, our message that we're you know going to be conveying this coming season is you know, there really is no reason for any G3 ski to go in a landfill. Um, we'll actually have it shipped back to G3 and we will then, we take ownership and responsibility for it. And that's, that's kind of the, the thinking that permeates everything we're doing now is that how we are responsible for that ski. We made that ski. Uh, a consumer came along and helped us, you know, and helped pay for it and things like that. And they get a lot of enjoyment and, and utility out of that ski. Uh, but ultimately our logo is on there. It's our ski. We designed it. And, uh, and how do we help the consumer now solve the problem? The next problem is, okay, what do I do with that ski once I'm done with it? And that could be because someone doesn't like the graphics. It could be because they broke it. It could be because it's, it's so-called soft or worn out. Like there's there are lots of reasons why we get new skis. Um, 
And those are, it's kind of irrelevant. How do you make a ski that lasts a long time? And then how do you solve that problem? Because now it's, it's just sitting there. And so we, we, we were offering a solution now to anybody who has our skis and our snowboards and, uh, we want them to take advantage of that. It, it's no longer a hurdle. We just kind of introduced like what the, this entire initiative is, which is R3. And I mean, it's so fantastic and really exciting to hear about because the idea of a ski being fully recyclable previously, like that has been a huge challenge for a lot of manufacturers within the industry. And I'm sure it's still a challenge, um, you know, these days as you work through sort of what that means from the consumer level, the uh, retailer level, and all sort of the logistics that go into it. What has made this such a challenge previously? Like you kind of mentioned, like, how do you sort of deconstruct a ski? And then, you know, what are some of the logistical challenges that you're looking at now that you're like trying to really overcome? Well, a ski is a very durable, tough object, right? It becomes this this thing that's not supposed to break. It's not supposed to crack. It's not supposed to fall apart. And so uh, it's difficult to take it apart for sure. Um, that's, that's really our IP. That's, that's what we, you know, we hold, we're holding close. Um, there are some other challenges that show up pretty quickly. And so, you know, let's say a a ski, someone in Colorado, you know, uses their ski and then they're ready to, to move on from that ski. Um, how do we get it back to G3? So you, you you ship it back to G3 and, and G3 will pay for that. And we've had people say, well, but that it doesn't make sense to put more energy, more, you know, to put it on a truck even. It's, it's a bigger um, um, environmental footprint, you know, CO2 or, or whatever. Um, and that's true. But if you weigh that against not bringing it back, right? And so you get into these interesting debates of is it worth putting a little bit more energy into it? And so you can release all those materials and reuse them in other in other ways. And so we have a home for all the materials. We actually have a home at a minimum, all the materials can go to the, the local municipality and Canada has a pretty good recycling system, but that's kind of the minimum. That's the bare bones. Um, so we have a home for all the materials. I think there's nine or 10 components in most of the skis, different materials. Um, and, but what else could you do with it? Could you, you know, would it be better to take the wood cores and build uh, children's furniture? Yeah, arguably it's better than composting the wood, right? Unless a re- you know a region needs needed compost biomass, um, and so we th- we view that as as a more valuable, a, a better direction. So we're constantly trying to find better homes for the materials. Um, you know, the ski edges when they're worn out and they might be a little bit rusty, um, they're they're definitely worn. You can't really build another ski with those edges, but it's high quality stainless steel and a ton of energy has gone into manufacturing that steel and steel manufacturers would love to have that as, as, you know, material that they can reuse. So that, that's, that's a very suitable home. There aren't many other things you can do with the, you know, that bent and, and chipped up, um, edges, ski edges, right. They're kind of harsh. Um, and so, yeah, that was a very suitable home. So if you can find a home for everything and it's not the landfill and you can put a minimal amount of energy into doing all that, then we think that makes a lot of sense. But there are some very interesting, we, we're challenged by people asking questions about, well, what about this? What about this? Nowadays, it's, it's, we're all open to the, well, it's not perfect. So you know, what about the, you know, and sometimes the problems are big problems to overcome. Other times they're like, Hey, you know, we're doing the best we can, right. With our current technology and the current availability. 
um, and what we can do as a, as a relatively small company, right? And fully recognizing that, um, you know, any steps we're taking to fight climate change are not going to be perfect. And there's always going to be some sort of, uh, you know, pluses and minus to, minuses mm. to things we're doing. And so we have to kind of recognize that, um, you know, if the end result is a better result than it would have been previously, like, that's great. And of course, I'm sure there's been a lot of sort of like, uh, measuring and analyzing all of these decisions along the way for you guys, yeah. especially like as you undergo B Corp certification. I mean, those are all metric based, you know, you're having to kind of give an assessment to where the business is currently and then, you know, sort of measure where you want to go yeah. and how you can get there. I'll tell you, it's easy to say, Hey, let's get B Corp certified. And then you think you sign up and you're just going to make a few changes, but boy, when you get into it and you start digging and we've only just begun, um, you're like, wow, this is a big project. And, and it, you really have to, it's, a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon and you've got to pace yourself and you've got to be realistic because you could, you could blow your brains out too, uh, you know, trying to do something that doesn't make sense. And the, the business always has to stay viable. It's how do you rebalance that business? And um, yeah, it's fantastic. It's a great challenge, right? Keeps, keeps things fresh. And like I said, we're, we're at the beginning stages of it but, and we're still learning a ton we're lucky because you can sign up for something like B Corp and there's other types of certifications that, you know, are, are also really worthwhile. They generally will improve any business. Um, usually, you know, you start down that path and then you start looking for technology and we're, we're product focused almost to a fault. That's just, just like, it's like, it's what we really love to do is make products and innovate. And so we figured out technology, but it wasn't, because we're going down a B Corp um, path, it was because that just made a lot of sense to develop a product like that. And we could, and, and we did. And, and so now it's like, oh, well, wow. It certainly fits in with these other, you know, aspirations of the business to go down a path like B Corp. Um, and so as, as long as there's improvements happening and, and the environment is certainly a really big part of that. And, you know, we've looked into solar power at our plant, uh, what does that make sense in Vancouver or not? Really interesting discussion and analysis that you can do. Um, and it ends up being, well, it doesn't make that much sense here at G3 um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but it's sure other things make a lot of sense, right? And in different parts of the world, you know, if you're using power in, in Vancouver, we have uh, mostly hydro, so water. It's We have a very large dam infrastructure that's in place and and the 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 electricity is considered to be relatively clean compared to the rest of the world, but it, you know, and using power here, yeah, you consume the power and you have to, you try to limit your power, but um, it's a lot cleaner than it might be in say other parts of the world where, you know, consuming power will burn a ton of coal directly into your local atmosphere and, and may not even be filtered or scrubbed or whatever. So, you know, choices like that, the choices you make in different areas makes um, geographically, the, the choices can be different. There isn't one system for one era, area, right? Um, and so we try to evaluate all that. But I'll tell you, there's so many factors, it becomes this massive project. And so you, you do what you can and you, you just you just jump in and start doing stuff. That's, that's, that's been our approach. 
yeah, there's no plug and play solutions and any sort of thing that you're working towards obviously has to be adaptable and uh, make sense for your given region and everything else that you're aiming to do. And I want to talk a lot more about sort of R3 and sort of what it means for the consumer and the retailer and everything else. Um, but before we do, I guess I just want to hear a bit more about how this kind of became the effort that you were focused on. Because um, before we actually started the conversation today, we were kind of talking about how you wanted to like reclaim and own that product. Um, if you're producing these products, you're trying to kind of own them. So what does it sort of mean to like take control of the life cycle for a given product and sort of reframe how as a business, you're now thinking about that product every time you're putting it yeah. out into the world? Yeah. I mean, the concept of ownership is interesting. You have the legal con, like, hey, I own, I bought it, I own it. Uh, and so you can do that. But the idea of, you know, it, I saw, if I saw a G3 ski in a landfill, it, it would be like a cringe. I'd be like, oh, like, oh, that's not a good way for that product to end. Um, and so we view, we try to, we try to frame it in the idea of there's a problem to solve. And that could be, a ski binding breaks. So let's design a ski binding that might last longer or a uh, skin doesn't glide well. So let's design a skin that glides really well. And so it, you're really solving problems for people. Um, and, you know, in, in this, in our realm, they want to go ski touring and there are a variety of problems uh, with ski touring and challenges. And so we try to make it the journey a little easier so they can go a bit farther and, and stay out longer and, and be fresher so they can do another lap. So these are all the problems we're trying to solve. Um, and the ski, the end of life of the ski is, is a problem. And unfortunately, I don't think, I mean, you know, my parents never looked at it as a problem. I didn't look at it as a problem when the skis went into the basement and then you end up getting new skis a couple of years later that it was just what happened. And you threw them in the garbage, I guess. I don't even know. Back in those days, you, you, I think you just put them out on the side of the street and the garbage truck came and picked up your skis. It would be really strange to see that now, right? Like you'd be like, oh, like, you know, it's all blue bins and, and recycling. And, um, and so the problem is there is a problem that we haven't been facing. And that is that what happens to the skis in general, not just G3 skis, but skis and snowboards. What happens to all those broken snowboards in the half pipe? What happens to all the, the skis that have, have buckled or broken or worn out or the, you know, the, the ski tuning guys say, Hey, I can't tune this ski. It's been tuned too many times, which is a good thing. You're, you're starting to push the life of that ski, but eventually we'll reach an end and we have to look at it as a problem. It's not just discard it and the problem's gone. Um, and that's that ownership. So owning something sort of more, uh, not, not on the legal sense, but uh, own the problem because, you know, we've made that ski and we sell it to somebody, they own it technically, but then, you know, how do we provide a solution? We're trying to provide a variety of solutions and we want, ultimately we want people to think of, Hey, there's another problem you're not really worried about is what do you do at the end of this product? Right. And, um, I guess with a car, you sell it, you know, it's not a, it's not a problem. You just sell it with ski gear. It kind of wears out and you, you just, you know, what happens, what happens to all those Gore-Tex jackets in your basement, all the backpacks, all the bike helmets that you have, like think of all this gear. We're all gearheads, right? Think of that gear that we have. First of all, do we, do we need that much gear? No. So how do you limit the amount of gear, but better quality gear that lasts longer, that can be refurbished, right? That can, you know, hiking boots that can have their, souls you know resold rebuilt 
um, those products are starting to make a lot more sense now when you think of the total life cycle and all the energy that went into it. And so we're, we're starting to own our products more and starting to put that into our design so that ski bindings can be rebuilt. Um, you can refurbish things and skis don't have to go in the landfill, but it takes time and it's a lot of, a lot of effort, right? A lot of problem solving along the way. So yeah, most ski, most ski companies, well, I don't really know of any, um, deal with the used skis, right? Uh, factories want to ship stuff and that's it. They don't want to see it. They, they would view that as, whoa, 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 don't send that back to us. We're, we're, we're not making money on that. And so um, how do you build that all in so that the retailers and consumers, um, how do they participate? Because ultimately they have to participate because they have the skis. How do you increase their awareness, the consumer's awareness and the retailer's awareness, if that's the channel, um, that there is a problem that hasn't been addressed? And where are all these skis going that these ski shops are selling? They don't really want to talk about it right? They're certainly not saying bring them back to us. They just hope they disappear, which is what's been going on for 50 years. But we're trying to make that, hey, you know, we we do own the ski. The consumer owns that ski and they are responsible for that ski. We're providing now a solution to that problem by telling the consumers, hey, there's a QR code on the ski. It always will be on the ski. And if at the end of the life of the ski, wherever you are, you know, scan the QR code and we'll tell you how we can solve the problem. So you don't have to throw these in the landfill. And yeah. so that's our big push right now. Yeah. And so you kind of opened up this solution and obviously all the back end work that went into it um, as far as the factory and logistics and everything else. Um, but now you're at sort of this moment where, yeah, you're going to start speaking about this to the consumer and also sort of educating the retailer. Um, so what does this look like for someone who's like maybe looking to buy, purchase an R3 ski this year? Um, or maybe they have uh, a G3 ski currently. Like how does this apply to them? And maybe what should they know about that product? Well, the current ski, so the R3 skis are only available. We, we, the, we've been... Um, distributing them on the sales and the shops have been looking at them and demos and things, but they're not, they weren't available for purchase. So they are now this coming season. I, I, I think you could go to our website now and buy one. I'm not sure if they're actually in stock yet or not or available. Um, if you have a current ski, meaning the ski current or older, uh, we don't have a solution. Unfortunately, we're like every other ski brand. We, the skis, we ship them and, you know, we hope that people sort of dispose of them in some way um, hasn't been really part of the conversation. Uh, but, and so we're, we're changing that. We no longer make uh, non-recyclable skis. Um, and, and so someone would buy a ski. Um, and by the way, our, our skis, they're not, they're not uh, new designs. Like, you know, we have some really awesome models like the finder or the seeker, you know, Slayer and, and a variety of other ones. Um, they're awesome skis. They've been around for a while because they really do the job really well. And we purposely chose to not design new skis like from scratch because this technology is applicable to what we have now. So we don't, we, we purposely didn't want people to say, ah, but I don't know that new model and hesitant. It's more like, oh, I, I've skied on the seeker. It's an awesome ski. I need to get a new set of, uh, of skis and I'm going to get the recyclable ones. Um, so there's, you know, there's low risk from that perspective. Um, someone would buy a ski either from retail or, or direct, um, and use that ski and use it as hard. It, you won't be able to tell the difference. Like, honestly, we've done blind tests. Uh, you cannot, they're as durable, if not more durable 
from everyday skiing, from impacting or jumping or, you know, whatever else you might do with the ski. And, um, um, and then when it does reach the end of its life, and that could be because you broke it, uh, it's unlikely, but you probably use it for uh, our, our info shows that most people use their skis two, three seasons seems to be a, you know, and then the skis are getting a bit worn. Uh, we certainly encourage people to, to, um, tune them, you know, again, if they say their edges are, are, are dull because they've hit rocks or they've, you know, scratched the bases, you know, our skis have full metal edges, full thickness bases. They can go through a, a ski tuning machine numerous times. Like you can really tune these skis a lot. And so that's good. So we encourage people to do that. anything you do to extend the life of the product just makes sense and saves a bunch of money, right? It's just the smart thing to do. There are people who just want to buy the new latest and greatest or to pass those skis on there's other things to do with it right i mean um the, the r3 was an interesting thing you know it, it came up someone someone in our marketing group i think we, we we're bantering about the name and stuff and said well ultimately we want people to ride the product you know reuse it meaning like pass it on give it to someone younger like you know someone starting out like keep that product going. That's the second R. And then we said, well, ultimately, wouldn't you want to recycle it? We're like, yeah, ride, reuse, recycle. It was kind of the, it was a fun, catchy, you know, there wasn't any more thought that went into that. We, this isn't, uh, uh, we just said, okay, you know, it's a, make that an R3 ski. And then and it's the R3 technology for, and so all our skis are now R3 and, and the snowboards. Um, and that's how we designate our products. We are starting to use the, you know, the R3 designation on other things, um, um, like our avalanche probes now, R3, or we call R3 sort of, you know, category, meaning you use the avalanche probe if you damage one of the segments or cut the, cut the cable or anything like that. Um, we actually have a kit now we can send people and they can rebuild the probe. And if, and if you broke a segment, we'll include a, a new segment, right? So there really is no reason to buy a new avalanche probe because they don't get used very much. And if you, when they are used, it's actually pretty tough on them. A lot of people will will damage uh, avalanche gear when when there's actual an unfortunate uh, avalanche accident. Um, and so there is a need to have, be able to rebuild that that type of equipment, and that's the right thing to do. Uh, and so that that will get an R three designation. So now it's become this designation within the company of does that product qualify? Does it have a high refurbishability? Is it does it have a high recyclability not just recycling content which is also part of it but what's the overall um, product focus and how does it uh, reduce the impact on the environment and if it qualifies on those things then we could give it a designation right or in our view it becomes an r3 product but we don't just we're not just putting r3 on all our products we don't feel we're all to that level so we're saving it for the ones that really have a high uh, impact um and we want people to understand, oh, well, you know, the G3 R, R3, G3 R3 products have a high impact and they're worth looking at, right? From, especially from a sustainability environmental perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's cool to hear how it can be applied to other types of gear as well, yeah. um, beyond just like we're here recycling skis and snowboards, but what it actually means and how you kind of touched on earlier that right to repair. Um, so as you're going about designing these products, um, and sort of weighing all the considerations of safety, durability, performance, things like that. I mean, what does it look like to sort of maybe test or prototype some of this and then 
feel good about it and send it out to the world? Yeah, I mean, it really is product by product. There is no sort of formula uh, because a ski is just the considerations, the needs, the problems it solves, the durability, what is a reasonableness for asking someone, you know, to repair it or replace it. Uh, There's shipping costs involved. Some things are much more onerous to ship than others. And, um, and also just expectation people, you know, uh, have an expectation that their skis last and that they, they can do certain things with their skis. Um, sometimes it's unreasonable. Sometimes it's not. Um, and same with the, the ski poles of the climbing skins, you know, how long should a climbing skin adhesive last? Right. And, and how, how careful sh- should you need to be with it before it's actually the products not designed well. Right. And then what are the performance characteristics? So all those things have to be considered. And then the cost. So, um, I mean, you can, you can make a, you can make a, let's say a ski pole or a ski binding, let's say you can make it. So it really never breaks. You could, but it would be really heavy. Right. And it would be really expensive. You'd probably have a lot of stainless. You'd have some really tough materials. It would be beefy. It would, it would work. But boy, not a lot of consumers would want to buy it. And so you've got this in the ski touring world and the outdoor world in general, you've got a real challenge of durability. Weight is often, you know, how much does your bike weigh? You know, how much does your ski boots weigh? Like weight is a question a lot of people ask. Uh, certainly it's part of the review process. And, you know, people say, well, you know, they like those boots or not because of the weight. Um, and then once you make things lighter, start to make things lighter. You really start to use different materials and then you want to use less material. It's one of the best ways to make it lighter, use less material Um, and certain materials that aren't as durable. And then you try to design it in ways and the shape and the form so that it is stronger, but it has less material. And so you kind of, but you get to the spot of, oh, is it lasting long enough? Because people want the low, really low weight. They want a low price always or a reasonable price. Um, and how do you, and, and they don't necessarily want it to last forever, right? Like with skis, people, people want new shapes. They want new graphics. Um, lots of different reasons why people go through different, um, get new products. And so it's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Do we really need that new jacket or that new, those new boots, you know, or can we just buy new liners in our boots or the boots are actually wearing out and they're, and they're not working well anymore. Um, same with skis, right? You know, do people really wear out their skis? Not that many people push the ski hard enough, often enough to really wear it out. Um, and so, you know, it's part of consumerism. Unfortunately, it's part of what's driving a lot of the demand and stresses and, uh, economic stress, but also, um, um, environmental stress, obviously, right? We just make a lot of stuff with a lot of people. And so where's that balance? And that's a constant, um, there's tension there, right? There's, and so there's societal tensions, what's reasonable. But I think most of us or almost all of us work, you know, work hard and we earn our money and we have aspirations on what we do with that money. And uh, for people who ski tour or mountain bike, you know, they want to get a new bike. They want to buy a bike with more travel. Do you need another centimeter of travel? I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> once you have enough. So, Yeah. But that's, you know, that's not our problem to solve. That's, that's people make those choices and uh, um, they're choosing to go ski touring. We want to offer the best package and best feature set at 
the best price that you know we think is the best combination of all those things. And now we're introducing the the environmental impact. We're that we're we're bringing that to the table without changes in price, without changes in durability, is now another thing that they can consider. And many people, it's, it's very important, you know, that you're out walking through this forest that's been managed or not managed. Um, you know, the snow season uh, is getting shorter, let's say, and wow, and the products you have under your feet actually are contributing to that, those problems. And so what are you doing to help? Does it mean you don't go ski touring? Or does it mean you go ski touring responsibly or as responsible as you are able to do, right? And those are all, all the decisions we make along the, along the way. Do we buy new gear? Do we, do we refurbish the gear? You know, those, those, there's lots of good choices to make, um, but it's not our place to tell people what they should be doing. We're offering different options. Right. And we think this uh, 100% recyclable skis is a very good option. Yeah, that's important. And I mean, you spoke to how kind of as you entered this process, you had to reframe how you were thinking um, from a business perspective. And then, you know, I would challenge other people who do enjoy getting out there and um, investing in great gear to challenge themselves to think about how they can reframe what they're doing to also address these challenges. And thankfully, there are now options um, when it comes to purchasing gear and maybe reusing or like you're doing with R3, being able to actually know that there is uh, sort of a not just a finite life cycle to a certain product that you're investing in. And so I think um, there's the challenge of the consumerism um, aspect as well that we can all think of because we all are consumers in this society. Yeah. And what is our really impact and uh, how do we leave the world in a better place, right? All the choices we make every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I think before we sort of maybe talk about the bigger picture of what this means for the industry and everything else. Um, let's just touch on the ski lineup for next year. Cause I think people will be curious to hear and you sort of, uh, hinted at it earlier, but we can just kind of talk about what the options for the 23, 24 season look like. And, uh, maybe, yeah, just sort of talk about what those skis are and who they might be for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, our lineup, um, you can find it online. Uh, the, our biggest ski, if you want to talk about the start with a big, you know, powder type ski, it's called the Slayer. Um, amazing ski. It's 114 underfoot. And that that's just an amazing, fun, playful Slayer. I mean, you can slay the vertical and you can, it's, it's, really, oh, it's very light. It's got a balsam core um, and uh, it, it needed quite a bit of engineering to make that durable enough. Um, that is on a if you on a weight per you know surface area or or one of the lightest skis out there on a per per unit basis. Um, so that's an amazing ski and really very technical, very pushing the envelope. Um, and for for people who who can have a, a powder ski in their quiver, that's that's a really really cool choice. Uh, and shockingly light on your feet, like you just you just when you're take that stride up the hill and you see this big ski under you and you're like, wow, like I could go all day. Like, it's really fun. It, it, it puts a smile on everybody's face and, um, and skis surprisingly well for being that light because of the uh, urethane. We do a polyurethane sidewall, uh, which absorbs a lot of the chatter and, and, and what normally a car- carbon fiber ski would suffer from is a lot of energy vibration uh, because it's so light. And the urethane, the rubber sidewalls, uh, absorb all that and make it very smooth. 
and so can really hold an edge on, on, on you know challenging icy conditions uh, but it is a, a bigger ski then uh, I, I'm next ski I mean, the seeker is is an awesome ski it's been around for a couple two seasons I think I'm not sure. Um, that's just a go-to ski for every day. It comes in two different widths, 100 and 110 underfoot. The 100 underfoot is just such a go-to ski for so many people. And very lightweight, skis really well, all carbon fiber, you know, wood core, um, urethane sidewall as well. That's my everyday ski if I just do some laps or if I travel. And someone said, hey, let's go let's just go skiing, you know, somewhere in the world and you didn't know what the conditions were like, uh, I would, I would grab that ski for sure. Um, uh, another ski that's, uh, has been in the lineup for a while is a finder. That's what we call our guide ski. It's got a bit more camber, um, holds an edge really well. Um, yeah, you could ski that with a big backpack. You could do a tour on that. You could set up anchors with that. You can slide down, crappy conditions early in the morning you can put crampons on it it's like that's a working ski and that's why we call it the guide ski because you know they have their one ski tried and true you grab it you go you can do anything on that ski um it's a really really good um uh, uh, solid model that's been around um and we haven't changed that just because it just delivers on what it's what it's intended to do um and then split well those are our main skis um then we have the um, split boards, two different split boards. So all our split boards are, are high, high carbon fiber uh, scapegoat, which is sort of a bigger, wider um, powder board. Um, uh, very lightweight. Uh, that can compete against some of the, the more expensive, lightest boards out there from any brand. And, um, and then we have the axle, which is more of a all round uh, split board, a little more modern shape and, um, you can do really anything on that board as as well, but it's not powder specific. It's really your everyday split board. Uh, and we, we, we don't make a solid board. We only do the split boards. And awesome. that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I know we have a seeker in for testing um, for uh, long-term okay. reviewing. So I'm looking forward cool. to spending some time on that as soon as we're able to go uphill. Um, yeah. Hopefully in like November or December, which is coming up. Awesome. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say though about R3 or, I mean, you know, without going into the details and all that? No, I don't think so. I mean, the, the key is that we will get those skis back. And, the, and this QR code is really an interesting, probably the best use of a QR code because it stays on the product. It's not a sticker. You don't have to remember anything. It's just there. And, and three years later, one year later, eight, eight years later, you can still scan the QR and they'll tell you what to do. Right. And you can you can claim, you know, your pickup tag for the shipping and, and those skis will get picked up and they'll be gone. Your problem will be solved and you and you're confident that it's solved in a good way. Right. Yeah. So that's, awesome. that's really the only the, what is the life cycle. Now, we haven't sorted out everything like we haven't been doing this for five years. And so we're we're kind of jumping into it saying, OK, this makes sense. But let's keep our eyes open as to um, what what might get better. Right. And how do we improve our system and process and stuff like that? And also to gauge the interest, you know, are, will a lot of people buy these skis? We don't know. We don't know what the competitors might say, like, we're kind of, we're, we're just doing this and it's the right thing to do. And so we just charge into stuff and then figure out, figure it out as we go. Yeah. Right. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. You charged into it with a solution to a problem. Um, of right. course, I'm sure challenges will arise and, you know, things aren't always going to be perfect, 
but you did give the consumer a pretty easy way to know that they have a great uh, sort of endpoint for yeah. their use of a product. And so, you know, like you just mentioned with the QR code, um, that's a very sort of simple system that ensures the consumer will always know what to do when they're done with that ski. Yeah. I'm, I'm very curious to see how many people take this option because it's one of these mysteries. Like, you know, everyone talks about the environment and clearly we, we, well, most people talk about the environment. Some people still think there's no global warming going on. Uh, so I'm curious to see how many people take this, this solution as a way to contribute to, to the bigger solution. Right. And, um, what will be the adoption rate? How many people will think it's a good idea? How many skis ultimately come back? And, uh, and we don't know, we don't know how many people will, will bother, you know, go through the process. How many ski shops will support this initiative with, you know, uh, taking care of a customer who comes in. And, you know, we, we will probably offer an incentive. Hey, if you bring back an R3 ski, you get a discount on, on your next R3 ski, right? And, and the ski shops may or may not like that. They may, yeah, we want the customer to come back, but we don't want them to come back with their old skis. Or they might say, oh, great, please bring back your old skis. We're going to help you take care of this problem because we're all part of, we're all part of it, right? Whether it's a ski shop or the end consumer or the factory, um, we all have to contribute in, in whatever way we can. And so we're still trying to figure out um, how supportive will the shops be? Uh, what, in, what incentives do they need? They need, you know, people ever need to make money on things, right? So we have that figured out, we think, and uh, we have a way to get the skis back to us. And so we're ready. We're ready for this. Let's, let's go. Like we're waiting. We're chomping at the bit actually for the yeah. snow to fall and, and get this whole system running. No, it's really exciting. And I mean, we spoke earlier about how sort of like you were confronted with this issue just walking around the factory. And I think more frequently every day we're being confronted by like the realities of climate change. And so sometimes we don't need these like big reminders. Um, it's just something that we're going to want to do because it's something we can feel good about. And so um, I think being able to, you know, have conversations like this, educate people about what their options are, make it really as easy and smooth for them as possible. Um, those are all the things you can kind of put in place to ensure that there is people that stand behind this and want to move this direction. Yeah. Yeah. So we're very curious to see what kind of response we get. Cool. Well, that is exciting. It's coming right up um, as we approach the ski season. But I think to kind of close out today, I just maybe want us to think about, you know, you've addressed a huge problem. I'm sure it hasn't been easy. Um, there's probably been quite a bit of investment in a lot of different ways on G3's end. Um, but as you started to really think about this and kind of start to see it happen, what does it mean? I mean, like on a on a larger scale and maybe how can things like this be scaled in a way that, you know, benefits, um, you know, this is, this is bigger than G3. Like you kind of yeah. mentioned, this is, this is a really exciting new development. Yeah. So that's, I mean, we, we started out designing these new, these new skis and snowboards and that was really fun. And like, Hey, this is a great solution to this relatively small problem. Um, and then I guess we took a step back and went, Wow this is technology we can apply to other things. We can apply it to broken mountain bike frames, you know, road frames, uh, carbon fiber, fiberglass, other things. And suddenly we were, were like, wow, like, you know, we're not in those markets and we need to start working with some of those people. And, and, 
and you just your your head starts to spin with all the opportunities. But you quickly realize, yeah, but there's there's the reality. We okay, you gotta now you gotta get start working with say a a bike manufacturer or designer even or a factory and the technological issues that have to get sorted out and changes that have to happen. We, we don't have enough hours in the day to, to, to change the world, right? Like you, you see the reality hits home. You, you get pretty excited about something and then the, sort of the vision, the dream sort of like, okay, the reality is we need to do this tomorrow and do this tomorrow. And, and so you, you sort of, you start, you start chipping away at it and, and you have to be, you have to be realistic. Um, but we welcome, we're trying to reach out to other brands, other companies. Um, we hope that other ski companies want to work with us um, and and involve there. You know, hopefully they see a solution as well um, and they want to be part of it. And if it becomes a bigger thing with other brands, we would love that. Um, we definitely get better conversations with some of the smaller ski brands because they're you know, more nimble, more agile. They're thinking outside the box. They're more flexible. They're kind of, they're not driven by just shareholder value. They're kind of driven, hey, let's make some cool products and, and be creative. Um, we're just trying to sort out our own uh, challenges because we're, we're just ramping up, right? And so it's all part of it. So hopefully it gets adopted in other ways. Yeah. Well, you've made those, you know, difficult first steps and you've gotten it to this point, which is super exciting. And now, um, you know, knowing that, there is a willingness to work with other brands and that you're not like, um, you know, an individual player in this whole network that is the industry. If it helps, right. And the industry is kind of good. You know, we talk amongst ourselves, but I mean, certainly, you know, if there's anyone out there who hears this and, and they're involved and they please reach out to us, like we would welcome phone calls from an, another brand. And, and, and especially if they were keen on going in this direction, um, we'd love to start that conversation. Yeah. That's awesome. And yeah, working together is definitely, um, you know, what, what it's going to require as far as addressing some of these very difficult problems. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's really exciting to hear sort of, um, you know, everything from where this all started many years ago to where it is today and kind of seeing how you've taken it upon yourself to address some of these very challenging problems. Um, but that, you know, also this year people can invest in a fully recyclable ski and there's a QR code that they can scan to make it simple. So that's all pretty cool. So thanks for sharing that. And, uh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. And, and, and thank you. It's always fun to talk through this stuff and sort of try to see the bigger picture on it. And, uh, we'll get back to the, the day to day and, and, and make this stuff happen. And the skis are, are getting ready to ship and it's kind of fun. You see them all and you're like, wow, this, this is so cool. It's the start of something really good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Oliver. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yep. Talk soon. Anytime. All right. Well, there you have it for this edition of Gear 30. And unfortunately, this week, I do have quite the story for crashes and close calls. A couple of weekends ago, I had a very mega epic adventure weekend with a bunch of my dear friends from New Mexico. We had some great adventures back to back. And come Sunday, we were all pretty tired. That was in mixture with some super dry and blown out trail conditions. And sadly, on one of our first descents of the day, one of our dear friends washed out their front tire and broke their collarbone. Thankfully, we were able to get her and the bike out and she's exceptionally tough and badass and was able to walk the six miles out. We also beat the storms that day and everyone safely made it back to the cars in a pretty timely manner. 
But it was a good reminder why it's so essential to be prepared in the backcountry for when things do go wrong. I personally know that I was grateful to have my wilderness first responder and be able to assess her injury. And we were all as a group able to make some game time decisions. But it was a good reminder, you know, that sometimes that exit and evac situation can be a lot more time intensive and resource intensive and potentially costly. So this is why we are so passionate about our Blister Plus membership. Not only do you receive all the amazing benefits of being a Blister member, such as a direct line of communication to Blister reviewers anytime you have a gear-related question, you get access to our digital and print buyer's guide that is dropping in just a few short weeks, a whole plethora of awesome gear discounts, and more. You also get access to a very comprehensive outdoor-related injury insurance that includes a $0 deductible and $25,000 of coverage per incident globally. So don't sleep on this. Sign up today because you don't always know when things are going to go poorly on your next ride or whatever other adventure you are having. And lastly, it's time for what we're celebrating. And this week I'm celebrating my amazing partner, Zach, because it's his birthday week and we have some fun adventures planned. So cheers to that. Thanks so much to Justin Bob for producing this episode. Thanks to Oliver for sitting down and sharing these insights with me and doing the hard work to really think about what's happening to G3 skis, snowboards, and more as they get old and maybe time to retire the gear. And thanks, of course, to all of you for tuning in. We will catch you all real soon on one of our many other podcasts or head over to the website and see what we're up to. All right. Thanks, everybody. Cheers.